Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. The community that God has placed us in, Chapel Hill, would oftentimes be considered a very diverse community. Uh, You don't have to go very far to be able to find somebody from a different culture, a different background, uh, a different nation, And together, we mix into one overall large melting pot. The research triangle with the movement of a lot of different people coming in for the tech industry has created that. So you go to Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill has just really, honestly, a big melting pot that is quite different than North Carolina past. So with this factor in place, we are surrounded by a number of different people from different religions and different belief systems. And just in Chapel Hill alone, you have atheists, you have universalists, you have Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and the list goes on. And probably some, everybody in this room knows someone that has a different religion than what they do living here in Chapel Hill. But even with all this diverse religion, Christianity is still considered the number one religion in the world. Christianity. Now we do have to define that a little bit. Uh, Because if you were to look at the definition of what a true Christian is, they are throwing in, uh, research throws in Protestants, Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Orthodox Christians that all claim to be Christians, but they're very different on a lot of very key issues. Uh, Matter of fact, here's what they found. And this is a Pew research that they did many years ago, and and this is what they said. 69% of Christians believe that God is a personal being. 69%. It's not extremely high. 29% that Uh, believe that he is just simply an impersonal force. 83% believe that heaven exists, and 68% believe that hell exists. 80% believe there is life after death, and 13% believe there is no life after death. These are people that claim to be Christians, and they don't believe in some very key aspects regarding Christianity. Only 37% believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. Uh, Let me repeat that. Only 37% of people believe that the Bible is the actual, literal Word of God. That's a problem. And then it gets even more dim. Only 25% of Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And 69% believe that there is another way to achieve a relationship with Christ. So with the reality of these statistics, a vast majority of people claim to be a Christian would not be a true follower of Christ. As you travel within the United States, there are certainly sections all across the United States that would be more friendly to church and Christianity in general, but they all come with their different set of challenges. For example, I'm from the Northeast, and we have some people that are visiting or their roots are from the Northeast. The Northeast, they are not as friendly to church as, that, as, as much as they would be in the South. Matter of fact, you're either in church or you're not going to church in the Northeast. So you have more of an antagonistic approach to Christianity in the Northeast. Whereas in the South, Christianity, church more specifically, is very popular. It's almost a culturally accepted thing to do. And so rather than having a group of people that say, I'm not going to church and they know they're not saved, you have a group of people in the South that believe they're saved because they quite simply go to church because they understand that that is what Christianity is, is going to church. And so sometimes they go to church as uh, really to be acceptable within their social circles, and you have two different problems in two vastly different cultures just here within the United States. 
As we celebrated um, the 4th of July just a couple of weeks ago, or just a couple of days ago, we celebrated our nation's independence. The United States was formed by a group of men and women that wanted to worship God the way they felt the biblical way was to do so. Matter of fact, the preamble to the Constitution says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves, our posterity, and they do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. I praise the Lord that we live in a nation that was founded upon biblical principles. I am grateful for the men and women that fought for our freedom, and I will always be a patriot. I will always be uh, faithful and, and grateful for the United States of America. But often with anything that brings great comfort and blessings comes apathy and forgetfulness. Forget about our roots because we are too busy living in the blessings that were achieved by or given to us by God. A nation that was once founded on Christian principles is now progressing further and further away from God and true Christianity. About 2,000 years ago, many, many years before the United States of America was formed, the culture had a different set of challenges. See, true Christianity uh, was underneath a new, dis new dispensation. It was the age of grace. Jesus Christ had died on the cross. He, he brought a final end to what our sins needed to, to be able to, to be paid for in order for us to have a relationship. He brought that to a final conclusion through his death that completed that. He, was, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And so Christianity was growing like wildfire. It was roughly 55 years since Christ ascended into heaven during this particular time period. And as Christianity was growing, so were other different belief systems that were combating against Christianity. So true Christianity was really fighting an uphill battle because this was a brand new philosophy, so to speak, as far as this new dispensation. And so if there was ever a time for encouragement that was needed for these battered and perhaps confused Christians, it was now. It was this particular time. Enter in the Apostle John. The Apostle John wrote part of the original, uh, was part of the original 12 and one of Jesus' closest disciples. He's the author of the Gospel of John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And also in addition to that, he wrote the book of Revelation. And so, matter of fact, he was actually um, the author that wrote some of the most information outside of the Apostle Paul and all of Scripture. During the late 80s and uh, early 90 AD, this religion known as Gnosticism became a dominant belief system. Gnosticism was, it was a system that was made popular by Plato. It actually believed that man and matter was inherently evil. I shouldn't say man. Matter itself was inherently evil, but the spirit was good. And with that, they denied the humanity of Jesus Christ because they, they believed that if you were to make Christ a human, in which he was, he was also God, that he would have to have a sinful nature. See, what they did is they separated the sinful nature from man. They believed that man did not have, a man that was good, did not have a sinful nature. And so this was spreading like wildfire, which goes against Christianity in general. It goes against the Christian teachings. And so as we progress forward, the Apostle John, understanding the confusion that was taking place, wrote the epistle of 1 John, not only to to go against the Gnostic and the heretical teaching that was going on during that time, but also provide a sure foundation for Christians. See, there were some believers that believed 
that if I was a follower of Christ, then uh, that means that I have to do this, and it's salvation plus works, which is incorrect. Other Christians believe that they truly were Christians because they did do these good works or because they did go to church, and that truly was not the case because their hearts had never been converted. And so uh, John wrote the book of 1 John so that we could be made full in our joy because of the knowledge of our salvation. As we move forward into 2019, we have the same problem of confusion as they did almost 2,000 years ago. Christ wants us to be confident in our faith. Christ wants us to know for sure where we are going after we pass away here on earth. As a Christian, we are in Christ, but as I just mentioned, research goes to show that there are some that are confused as to what genuine Christianity truly is. So for the remainder of the summer, we're going to explore this epistle of 1 John and what God says regarding true Christianity. So if you can take your Bibles, flip them with me to 1 John, we're going to start reading in chapter 1. So 1 John chapter 1, the verses will be on the screen as well. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to be able to give you one because we know that is the most important thing that you could possibly have here on earth is God's word. So 1 John chapter 1, many letters and epistles are written within the New Testament. They were addressed to specific churches. Most of the Apostle Paul's letters are addressed to specific churches. We think about um, 1 Corinthians was addressed to the church of Corinth. Ephesians was addressed to the church of Ephesus. The epistle of 1 John was not addressed to one specific church. It was actually a circular letter, which meant that it was designed to be passed around to all the different Gentile congregations. So the book of 1 John was not addressed to a specific church, but rather a helpful letter for all the different churches. John wrote about the most vital aspects of faith so that the readers would know and understand the Christian truth from error. So as we progress through this epistle, each week we are going to observe one characteristic of a true Christian. What does a true Christian possess? What really makes a person a true, legitimate follower of Christ? Is it a person that prayed a prayer? Is it a person that does good works? What makes a true Christian a follower of Christ? And John gives us those principles in his book of 1 John. In the first four verses, John gives us this purpose of the epistle. And really, he's just, I mean, he's giving his authority in the first verse here. As I mentioned earlier, there were many that took away the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so the apostle John says in verse 1, listen, I am a man who ate with Christ who talked with Christ, who heard Christ speak, who, who, who saw Christ do miracles, I am that man. And so if there's anybody that has any authority to write on the work of Christ, it's this man right here. So now he's doing two things here. He's providing authority of him writing this scripture regarding the life of Christ. And also, he's going back to the humanity of Jesus by saying this man ate and he heard things and he, and he, and he talked with people. He's giving the humanity of Christ, which goes against the big heretical teachings of that particular time period. John is speaking to us from a personal experience. So when we read these words, I want you to read them from a person who had an intimate conversation, many intimate conversations with Jesus Christ. As John finishes with his prologue, he begins with the first character of genuine Christianity in 1 John chapter 1. We're going to read in verses 5 down to the second verse of chapter 2. If you are able to, out of respect to God's word, if you could stand with me as we read God's word here this morning. uh, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 down to chapter 2, verse 2. 
This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship one with another... And the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Through these words of John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, our goal this morning is to see the first characteristic of a genuine Christian, and that is this, a genuine Christian walks in the light. A genuine Christian walks in the light. Thank you. You may be seated. Within these next verses here, John builds upon himself this foundation of a Christian walking in light. The first point that he likes to make here in your notes is that to walk in the light is to live a transformed life. To walk in the light is to live a transformed life. Uh, Here at the chapel, we like to continue to help you grow in your spiritual Walk, And so one of the ways that we do that is we have a podcast. It's called the Chapel Podcast. And so it's where we host our messages and our growth point classes. But Monday through Friday, we also have a five to six minute uh, daily devotional. And currently what we're doing is we're praying through the book of James. And so this past week, we talked about James and how James speaks of works as evidence of true Christianity. We understand that works, though, is not part of Christianity. We have to understand this. Works is not part of Christianity. And some seem to say that James is actually speaking to that. But that would go against what Paul teaches in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Works or good fruit is a result of genuine salvation. So if we read the Bible as a whole, we understand that the Bible never contradicts itself. Fruit, good fruit, is a result, it is evidence of salvation. Um, I am still praying that the Lord will, I am grateful for everyone that's here. I am grateful for how God is continuing to grow this church, but I still have not found a person that plays golf in this entire auditorium and the people that are on vacation. And I'm praying, Lord, please bring somebody that plays golf. And uh, not only have I not found somebody, I've talked to people and they said, I'm not only not a golf player, I, uh, Mr. Russ, do you play golf? I found one. Praise the Lord. He answers prayer. And he's been at our church since the very beginning. Greg, you do too? Okay, I need to talk more people about golf then. So as we go through, if we go through this, this life uh, here, and let's, let's say I tell you I am a professional golf player. I'm a professional golf player, just so that everybody knows that. I can walk around with my set of Nike golf clubs, because all the pros use Nike. I can walk around with my Nike golf clubs and my Nike golf balls and my uh, awesome outfit. I even have the knickers like the old school golf players used to wear. And I got the outfit. I have everything ready to go for golf, right? I can tell you all day long that I'm a golfer. But it is not until I get on that golf course and you see me swing that golf club, because most people can tell after one swing whether or not that person is a professional, will you then actually see the evidence of my claim? So as a Christian, 
Somebody can say, I am a Christian all day long. But until you see the fruit evident of their life, will you fully understand and realize whether that or not that person is a true follower of Christ? So works do not indicate a relation. Sorry, works do not lead into a relationship with Christ. Works are just a natural flow of what is truly in our hearts. And so as we go through this book of 1 John here, the first point that John wants to make is that a true Christian, a person that walks in the light, will live a transformed life. John says in verse 5 that God is light and within him contains no darkness. The gospel of John in John chapter 1 verse 9 refers to Christ as the true light. Light dispels darkness. Light cannot be defiled, but it can reveal defilement. Christ came to earth as the light to dispel the darkness of sin and to reveal the defilement of sin. Light is a picture of truth. It's a picture of knowledge. It's a picture of righteousness, integrity, while darkness is a picture of falsehood, ignorance, and sin. John declared that God is light. He is truth, he's knowledge, and he's righteousness, and in him there is no darkness. There is no falsehood, ignorance, and sin. John goes on to say in verse 6 that since God is light, and if we say that we are a Christian, in other words, if we say that we have a genuine relationship with Christ, but yet our life is characterized by darkness, characterized by sin, then we lie to ourselves. It is impossible for darkness and light to live together in the same place. So if a person is living a lifestyle of sin consistently, they have no desire to get out of that lifestyle, and if you were to look at them and their lifestyle is anything but light, anything but uh, Christianity, then the Bible says, 1 John, these are his words, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they are not part of the family of God. It is evident in their fruit. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? They cannot go together. So the question this morning is, how do I know if I'm walking in darkness? And there's several questions you can ask yourself. Number one, ask yourself, do I love Christ? Do I love Christ? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Not asking you, and neither does the Bible ask, do you believe in Christ? The Bible says that the demons themselves believe in God and they tremble. It's not good enough to believe in God. The question is, do you love Christ? How can you love someone? You love someone by giving your heart to them. You love Christ by giving your heart to them. If you do not have a relationship with Christ, it's impossible to love him. It's one thing to love the thought of Christ. It's one thing to love the thought of him being loving towards us, and I'm moved by that emotion. It's another thing to love him enough to actually give your life to him. The second question you ask yourself is, am I sensitive to sin? Am I sensitive to sin? When I go through life and I do things that are wrong, am I sensitive enough to be able to get out of that and get that taken care of with God? Another question you can ask yourself is, do I have a desire to obey God? Do I have a desire to obey God? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Hereby do we know him if we keep his commandments. It's not talking about perfection. It's talking about a desire to please him. Uh, my dad and I are very close. So, so is my mom and I. Uh, I'm very blessed to have such awesome parents. But out of a love that I have for my dad, I have a desire to please him. It's not because I'm afraid that my dad, especially when I'm 30 years old, he's not going to send me to my room and ground me for a week. 
I'm an adult. I, 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 I mean, I have a choice to be able to do things on my own now, but I still honor my dad. And it's not because my dad is forcing me to honor him. It's because I love my dad. I have a respect for him and I want to please him. If we love God, then we have a desire to please him. We have a desire to honor him. If we do not have that desire, if we could care less about the commands of God, then we don't have the Holy Spirit. We don't have Christ in our hearts. Another question you can ask yourself is, and this is huge, do I reject the world's system? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If we have a desire to be in the world and to be worldly and to love the things that contradict the word of God and we, and we have a craving for that, we must check our hearts. Another question is, do I love other Christians? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, um, I'm sorry, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. And then finally, do I experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. If these factors are not evident in your life, the Bible says, John says, that we do not walk in light, but we walk in darkness. One of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture can be found in Matthew chapter 7. It's the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's speaking to the people. And he says in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus Christ, in verses 13 through 14, he says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The path to Christ is narrow, it's precise, and very few people actually follow that path. They try to incorporate all these other things in order to, to lead into a relationship with Christ. But that, those two verses, is, that's not the most sobering passage in all of Scripture. It's a few verses later in verses 21 through 23. And this is what Jesus says. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven... Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works, and I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So the question is, Christian, are you walking, are you walking in the light? Are you a children of the light? Going back to this passage here, when it says here, not everybody will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. What is the will of God? The will of God is that everybody would accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. It's that everybody would repent of their sinful lifestyle and put their faith and trust in Christ and live their life for him. That is the will of the Father. But very few people actually do that. Going back to 1 John and verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 7, it says that if we walk in the light, then we have genuine fellowship with other Christians and in, uh, with God. And verse 7 it says the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. In the Old Testament times, believers symbolically transferred their sins to an animal which they then sacrificed. The animal died in their place to pay for their sin and to allow them to continue living in God's favor. God graciously forgave them because of their faith in him and because they obeyed his commands concerning the sacrifice. Those sacrifices anticipated a day when Christ would completely remove sin. 
Christ was sacrificed on the cross and he paid the penalty for all of our sins. And John says that his blood cleansed us from all sin. His sacrifice restores our relationship with Christ. But the phrase cleanses us from all sin does not mean the eradication of our sinful nature. And I wish that that was the case, but it does not mean that. It means the restoration of our relationship with God because of justification. In other words... When we accept Christ in the eyes of God, we are viewed as being sinless. The blood of Christ covers over our sin. It sets us free, and we are viewed in the eyes of God as being sinless, which therefore affords us the restoration of our relationship with God and eternity in heaven. But that leads us into point number two. A transformed life does not equal a sinless life. A transformed life does not equal a sinless life. John further expounds on the nature of genuine Christianity by addressing the sensitivity of a Christian to sin. In verse 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In keeping in the passage, in the context of this passage here, John is writing to not only provide a model for genuine Christianity, he's writing to combat against the thought that was taught that man does not have a sinful nature. It absolutely does have a sinful nature. But that's what the people believed. Remember that Gnostic teaching? They taught that man was not sinful. That they were part of the spirit and that they were pure people. But that is not the case. Not only did the false teachers walk in darkness and reject the humanity of Christ, they went so far as to say that they did not have a sinful nature. They deceived themselves. They deceived others. The false teachers forgot one basic truth, and that is this. All people are sinners. If a person does not recognize that they are a sinner, then they cannot receive Christ. Because there, in their minds, no need for a savior. A preacher was once told by a man... I have no sin. The preacher responded back to that man, let me talk with your wife and see if she has the same conclusion as what you do. Marriage reveals the sinful nature in us often. For us to think that we no longer have a sinful nature is ludicrous. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 says, Who can say I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? No one. No one after salvation can say that I am no longer a sinner I no longer have a sinful nature. John recognizes this reality and assures us in verse 8 that even if we still sin, that does not indicate that we are not a true follower of Christ. In fact, an indication that we are true followers of Christ is to be bothered by our sin. When we are bothered by our sin in verse 9, John gives, tells us what we ought to do. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to put this in context here. This passage was written to Christians. And so verse 9 is not talking about the confession, the repentance that we make at salvation. It's talking about the confession that we give to Christ after salvation. So if I, can, if I can explain it very clearly this way, uh, once we receive Christ, the relationship that we have with God has now been restored. See, without a relationship with Christ, without putting our faith and trust in Christ, we do not have a relationship with God. But once we accept Christ, our relationship is restored. But when we sin after salvation, our relationship with God is not severed. It's our fellowship is broken. So when we have sin in our life as a Christian, our fellowship with God is broken. Our relationship is never broken. 
We believe in the assurance and the validity of our salvation. Once you receive Christ, you never lose that. But our sin will separate or will break the fellowship that we have with God. And John says that we ought to confess our sins to God. And he will restore that fellowship. He will cleanse us from that unrighteousness. David cries out in Psalm chapter 32, verses 3 through 4, over his sin. He says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night my hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. This is David. He is a follower of Christ, but he is broken over his sin. He goes on to say, My iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Once we receive Christ, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Yet even though all of our sins are forgiven, the moment of salvation we still in sin must still confess. This kind of confession is not to gain God's acceptance, but to remove the barrier to fellowship that our sin has put between us and him. And the privilege that we have regarding this confession of sin is that we can go directly to the throne room of God without having go, going through a mediator. We don't have to go to a priest. We don't have to go through the pastor in order to confess our sins to them. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is our mediator. We can go directly to the throne room of Christ through the power of Christ. But if we were to take this verse to heart, some Christians then impose upon the grace of God. I've talked with people in the past that believe that, hey, you know what, I've been saved by grace and so therefore I can never lose my salvation. So it's okay if I kind of make some decisions that God would not approve of. I'm not going to lose my salvation. I'm still in his grace. I can ask for forgiveness later. The Bible makes that very clear that through the Apostle Paul that that should not be the case. In Romans chapter 5 verses 20 through uh, chapter 6 verse 2, the Apostle Paul says this, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, he's talking about the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was designed to show men how faulty they were, how sinless they were before God. It was a tutor to drive men and women towards Christ because it was impossible for anyone to keep the Old Testament law. And so the Old Testament law was designed to show men and women how sinful they were and to drive them to their need for a Savior. That law is no longer the means for our salvation. It's through Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul continues and says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But then he goes on to say, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that's the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ. That sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. So Lord, what shall we say then? Understanding that we live in grace. Romans, the Apostle Paul says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? When the Apostle Paul uses that term, God forbid, this is the strongest language in all of the New Testament to show this sense of urgency. The Apostle Paul, being a former Pharisee, understood what the Pharisees would respond back to him based upon the truths he just gave them. He was anticipating that the Pharisees would say, Okay, if we're saved by grace, then we can just continue to sin, right? Because we're saved by grace, it's all good. The Apostle Paul says, no, God forbid. Why would we continue in sin? We have the freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. Why would we? 
We still have a sinful nature, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ought to become less and less sinful. Which leads us into our third and final point. A transformed life equals a sanctified life. The term sanctification or sanctified means to be set apart or declared holy. There are three stages to sanctification. Three terms. Some of you may have heard these terms before. First off, you have positional sanctification. Positional sanctification occurs at the moment that a person receives Christ. They are now sanctified in the eyes of God. They are declared holy in the eyes of God. And then the second term is known as progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is this journey that we are on here on earth as Christians to become more like Christ. Those of you that were saved when you were first saved, I dare say that you are further along in your spiritual journey. You are more mature as a Christian than you were when you were first saved. That is called progressive sanctification. And then the final term is ultimate sanctification or complete sanctification. That occurs when we die here on earth and we go to heaven in our glorified state. We are completely sanctified. We no longer have a sinful nature. But as the Apostle uh, uh, John continues on here, he's saying here that a transformed life does not equal a sinless life, but it equals a sanctified life. In verse 2, he says, these things write out unto you that you sin not. In other words, you have the power through the Holy Spirit to not sin. You are free from sin. But then he knows that we still have a sinful nature, and so he continues in verse 1 and says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in other words, if we do sin... We can go through Jesus Christ before the throne room of God and get forgiveness of that sin, restoring our fellowship with God. But I want to conclude with this final verse here, and that's in verse 2. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is that talking about? There are two different belief systems within Christianity today, and if I could illustrate it this way, um, you have a ditch over here, and you have a ditch over here, and you have a road in the middle. So when you're driving on the road, are you supposed to avoid the ditches? Absolutely. But if you veer a little bit over to the right, you're going to hit the ditch on this side. If you veer a little bit over to the left, you're going to hit the ditch on that side. So if I can explain it this way, you've got this term which is known as Arminianism, that puts a full emphasis on man's free will. You have a term over here which is known as hyper-Calvinism, and they put a full emphasis upon the sovereignty of God. Now, if you again, some people ask the question, are you a three-point Calvinist or are you a four-point Calvinist? I don't like to answer that. Uh, I like to say, well, I'm a biblicist, and it's not like I'm a holier-than-thou because of these two different terms. It's because I operate according to exactly what the Word of God says. And if you were to put too much emphasis over here on God's sovereignty, you're going to run into this ditch. If you're going to put too much emphasis on man's free will, you're going to run into this ditch. And so with that being said, the Arminianists believe that a person has a free will to choose to receive Christ. That is absolutely 100% accurate. But at the same time, a person with that free will has a free will to be able to give up their salvation back to Christ. In other words, they lose their salvation. That is not accurate. John chapter 10, verses 29 through 30 say that once we receive Christ, we're placed in God's hand of protection. He closes real tight. There's nothing we can ever say or do that will ever take away our salvation. On this side over here is too much emphasis on the sovereignty of God. There's some believe that Christ died for a certain group of people known as the elect. 
They take passages out of Ephesians where it talks about predestination and, and, and foreknowing and foreordaining. And they say that, okay, when Christ died on the cross for our sins, he only died for those that God knew out of his sovereignty would receive him. And so salvation is only available for those that Christ died for. It's a term known as limited atonement. But there are portions of Scripture, all throughout Scripture, that would, that would go against that teaching. And this is one of them. In 1 John chapter 2, as I mentioned earlier, what is this passage written to? It's written towards Christians, right? And so what he says here in verse 2, he is a propitiation for our sins. But then he says, not for ours only. He's saying, not for only the elect, but for the sins of the entire world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste the death for every man. 2 Corinthians 5, 15 says, And he that died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The important thing to remember, and if I can explain it this way, is salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift. It is not our responsibility to determine who receives that gift and who doesn't receive that gift. Here's a fact. Let's just say that every single person in this auditorium right now represents every single man, woman, child that ever was born, that lives now, and ever will live. Let's just say all of you represent that entire number. And I take a table, and I lay out the exact number of gifts for every single person in this room. That is a, that's available for you. I am not going to take that gift, and I'm not going to put it in your hands. I'm not going to force you to take it. It's a gift. Nobody forces you to take a gift. I mean, they might shove it in your hands. They may shove a $20 bill and says, this is yours to take. But ultimately, unless we actually receive it, they they can't force it down your throat. They can't force you to, to spend it on anything. So here's the gifts here. And if I can illustrate it this way, does God in his sovereignty know who's going to receive that gift? Absolutely, he does. He absolutely does. He's sovereign. But does that mean that that gift is only for those that do choose to receive it. No, it's available for everyone. Now here's the important thing to remember. That gift is only effective if somebody chooses to receive it. The the gift of salvation, the death, the burial, the redemption of Jesus Christ only works for those that receive that gift. If somebody rejects Christ, then they die and they go to hell. That gift is not a benefit for them. But if I can explain it this way to go against what the Arminians teach, if you were to come up and you say, I I want that gift, and you pick up that gift and you receive it for yourself, the Bible says that our names are written on that gift of salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? That blood cannot be erased. Satan cannot try to scrub out that blood. That blood is a final imprint of your name. So you can never get that gift taken away from you. So the important thing to remember here is that when John is saying here is salvation is available for everyone, but it is mankind's choice to be able to accept that. That's why we will never, as a church, stop praying for those that have not received that gift. I wish, I wish that in my, uh, the bottom of my heart that I could force somebody to receive it, but I can't. Jesus Christ and his goodwill and his sovereignty will never force himself upon anyone. But those that want to receive Christ can. And he knocks on their door. 
He knocks on their heart, knocking over and over again, using different circumstances and situations to draw people to him. The Holy Spirit is drawing the world to him. He's using Christians to do so with those that are unsaved. You talk to a person that's unsaved before, they seem restless. They seem upset about the gospel. You know what's going on? It's the Holy Spirit drawing them in to himself. But the Holy Spirit will not force himself upon anyone. They have to be the ones to choose that. And so as a church, we pray for those that have not received Christ yet. We pray for our family members. We pray for those that are caught up in sin. But as we close here this morning, this first epistle here, my prayer is that if there's a person in this room that may have themselves convinced that they're walking in the light, but they've examined themselves through the mirror of Scripture and they realize, man, there was a point in my life where I prayed, but there's never been any evidence of a change in my life since prior to that prayer versus now. I don't have a true desire to do the things of Christ. I, I don't have a true desire to break out of the world's system. I don't love other Christians with a brotherly love. I don't do those things. The Apostle John says that you have to take a serious examination of your own heart. You're the only one that can answer that before God. I can't answer it for you. Your spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, they can't answer that for you. It has to be between you and God. But as I mentioned earlier, the gift is here. It's waiting for you. All you have to do is accept it. He's knocking on your heart door. He's pleading with you. All you have to do is accept it.